Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Yes, it's Mooney Goes Wild on Sunday, and given that we're on Monday as well, it's either your first or second helping of nature this week or next week. Depends on when you think the week begins. Does it begin on Sunday or does it begin on Monday? I think it could depend on where you live, I suppose. If you lived in Afghanistan, you might consider it begins on Saturday. Or if you lived in Australia, you might think it's Monday. Or if you lived in Argentina, you might think it's Sunday. Anyway, over to you. Let me know, would you please? Email me during the week, Mooney at RTE. Dot IE. But just to remind you that you can listen to Mooney Goes Wild on Sundays from 7 to 8 and then again on Monday from 10 to 11pm and we mix it all up and we're going to mix it all up tonight. Let's begin by saying hello to Dr Richard Collins. Hello Richard, how are you? I'm very well, Derek. Richard's in North County Dublin in Malahide. Let's move now to County Wicklow and say hello to Niall Hatch. How are you, Niall? I'm very well too, yes. Enjoying the, the, the sunny weather at the moment, getting out doing lots of bird watching. Good to hear it. And before we say hello to Professor John O'Halloran, Niall, I'd like you to explain the EU ban on lead shot because that's going to be our main topic for tonight's programme. Yes, Derek. Uh, so the European Commission has just uh, launched a new regulation which has to be implemented by all of the European Union member states. And it concerns the use of lead shot for hunting purposes. Uh, so it's used, obviously, in shotguns. Little pellets of lead are in there, little lead balls which are used to, to shoot wildlife. Lead, of course, is a very, very toxic substance and there are problems when it gets into our wetlands. So the main thrust behind this legislation is that lead shot will no longer be allowed to be used at wetlands in particular, but also, if a country has above a certain area of wetlands, that, that area has been defined as 20%, then lead should be actually banned actually completely across that whole country, that whole member state. So uh, so there's still a bit of toing and froing as to exactly what constitutes a wetland. Uh, so there's some issues around that. But certainly what we can say for sure is that within uh, a year, we're going to have a, a complete ban on the use of lead shot at wetlands. And if a country actually happens to have uh, more than 20% of its area as a wetland, then actually Actually, there's an extension period, a sort of a, an implementation period of actually two years or so when that will come in. Uh, so that does actually give a bit longer for those for those countries. However, in Ireland, the actual area of wetlands has been defined as being at just under 19%. Uh, there's some dispute among conservationists and other bodies as to actually whether that's been properly calculated based on the criteria used by the Ramsar Convention. But it's clear that this law is coming in at the very least for wetland areas and areas adjacent to those. OK, thank you, Niall. We'll tease that out. Shortly, now let's say hello to Professor John O'Halloran, President of University College Cork, who joins us now from the studio on campus there. John, I want to take you back a few years, if that's okay, to your PhD. I want you to tell me what it was about, because it's relevant to this discussion today. My PhD was on lead poisoning in swans and, and I've worked on a whole range of issues in relation to lead toxicity uh, as part of my PhD and published uh, across the, the world on that. And then I continued to do research with my students on lead toxicity in birds for a considerable period of time later. Well, talk to me about lead poisoning in swans specifically. Now, you were looking at mute swans. Yeah, exactly. And maybe before we do that, Derek, uh, I mean, it's important to say that lead has no known biological function. So, I mean, we, we've lots of heavy metals, like whether it's copper and zinc and other types of heavy metals. Metals. Lead is a heavy metal. It has no known biological function. And we know that it is toxic, even to humans. And we know it was removed from paint and it's removed from pencils and all the kinds of things we're used to. Specifically then on birds, we know that lead can be picked up. Previously, of course, lead used to be in petrol and even swans grazing in areas that in urban areas may have actually picked up some a, a small amount of lead from, from vegetation and deposits in, in, in urban areas. But the big challenge for most waterfowl, including swans, is that they sometimes ingest uh, lead pellets. Those lead pellets can be from hunting or they can be from angling lead. And this is something that has been going on for a considerable period of time. Now, can you describe what a lead pellet is, John? And when you say they could ingest them from hunting or from even angling, just explain that. I mean, I really want to spell this out before we get into the main discussion to our listeners. Yeah, so maybe before we get to the lead itself. So every bird, um, every bird typically has, well, first of all, they have no teeth. We know that a bird has a beak. So therefore, in order to to, to break down the food, they need to to masticate it and constantly grind it down. So what birds do in the same way as chickens do and turkeys do and all ducks and species is they have a gizzard. And in this gizzard, it's a sack. 
it's a muscular sac and in that gizzard there are pebbles or stones so when and I think I know previously on these on this show we talked about birds selecting grit and, and, and taking grit and what birds are doing there is helping their digestion so they grow and they get grit into this little muscular sack and they grind and masticate the food down. And again, just for the benefit of the listener, when you're driving along, you're walking along a country road and you'll see the birds go out and you think they're kamikaze birds, they're going out to get little bits of grit to help them digest their food, to get it into their gizzard, correct? That's what's That's going That's exactly on. right, exactly right. So if you can imagine you're a swan or a, a duck on, on, a, on a waterway and you see them upending, we've all seen it, with the, the neck has gone underneath the water, maybe the tail is cocked up and they're actually either feeding on vegetation, but they're also looking for grit. And if you can imagine then suddenly there were lead pellets on the ground and I'll come to the lead pellets in a moment, in, in the water, in the mud flats or in the mud, and they actually ingest that at the same time as they would ingest grit. Now, what's really interesting is lead, it, actually, it can be sweet for these birds, actually. And just to go back in history, the Romans used to add lead to wine to sweeten it. So, you know, this is something that we've been around our lives for a long, long time. So obviously there's a taste. So it's possible that the birds may actually taste this and, and ingest it actively. We hope that isn't the case. So what happens then is they accidentally pick up these lead weights and instead of the pebbles in their gizzards or in their in their stomachs they grind down the lead it's very soft and of course it gets into their blood and we can come back to that in a moment now the the lead pellets themselves are very small little pellets um anybody's ever did a bit of fishing and i've done it myself you have a little lead weight what's called a split shot there's a little kind of a a groove in it and put it over the line and it it carries the weight out i know they're 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 very rarely used now but hunting uh, Gunshot pellets then have a significant number of little lead pellets in them, uh, very small little spheres that are little like little pebbles and little beads, I suppose, is the best way to describe. And they're grey in colours and they're pieces of lead. And that's what happens here. And these birds are then dying or what's happening to them? So there's a range of things depending on the number of pellets, depending on the health of the bird, depending on the time of year. And, you know, all of those come to play. So let's say a bird ingested maybe five, six, seven pellets. That, in the case of a mute swan, that would probably kill a mute swan. So if it doesn't kill them, we get what are called sublethal effects. So these are effects where it doesn't kill the animal, but reduce its fitness. And some of the work that I published from my PhD actually showed that even birds that had a modest amount of, of lead ended up colliding with poles and wires and things. So so there are sublethal effects as well as lethal effects. Could you really put that down to the lead poisoning? Might they not just be bad flyers? Yeah, I mean, you could, but we do know that lead is a neurotoxin. So that a neurotoxin is where we know that the lead itself damages the nervous system. We know that flight is a, a very high precision activity, a lot of navigation, whether it's physical navigation and brain activity. Of course you can, but the, when we looked at control deaths, so in other words, if you look at, at some birds that have been found beneath um, other places where they have uh, died for other reasons, and we compare those against those which have been found beneath wires, let's say, with high lead concentrations, and we can associate with that, yeah. Okay, so you would have had to find these carcasses and then carry out a post-mortem. Correct, correct, yeah. And then identify that lead was the main cause. Cause of death, exactly. So how many did you find over the period of time you were doing (sighs) your PhD? You're really testing my brain now, Derek. Well, it's going I mean, back. No, yeah. if it was ten, yeah. because you yeah. say I found a small number, or it no. was twenty, or thirty, or a couple of hundred, or it would be less than less than the couples of hundreds. Actually, uh, I mean, it would be probably in the, somewhere. Less, I might say about a hundred would be a, a good number in the case of of swans. But of course, swans are very big and visible. Uh, if you can imagine the same thing happening to a duck, if the same thing happened to other waterfowl species that retreat into areas and just don't see them. I mean, swan, even to find a dead swan, and Richard will well know, it's sometimes not easy to do. But even then, you know, with a big white bird, you can pick them up pretty quickly. But it's the sublethal effects that have the population effects. So those effects that don't kill the animal, mm. but might affect its, its physiology and might affect its nervous system will also have an impact. Would it have any impact on its breeding, its offspring? Yeah, we would no evidence of that, actually. Okay. Uh, no evidence of that. But just on that, I mean, we do know that lead actually gets deposited in bones. So we know that when birds are laying eggs, they mobilize significant amount of calcium during that period. Uh, so if there was lead deposited in the bone and then suddenly when they start to breed, it's possible that some of that lead might come back out as well. So the bottom line you found was when you were doing your PhD that lead was poisonous and not good in the environment. Correct, 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 correct yeah. Richard. Very interesting, John. You bring me back to the days when I was doing something rather similar in swans. I was trying to decide what the effects of isolation on this island of mute swans would be. Islandization should lead to a change in behaviour. Now, one of the most curious things to find was that swans were much slower to breed in Ireland than they were in Britain. 
They were a year or two later getting on with the problem of breeding. Now, I came to the conclusion that the reason that swans were slower to breed here was that there were fewer job vacancies, effectively, in Britain. There's a massive amount of coarse fishing, people fishing for what we call coarse fish, things like rudd and roach and perch and so on, which are not extensively fished here. In Ireland, that was far less common. Anglers went for trout and salmon. Now, the coarse fishmen were using a lot of lead in every pond and river and canal in Britain. There were fellas uh, dropping lead into the water. And at the end of the day, they'd throw the discarded lead into the water very often. And I came to the conclusion that the death rate in Britain was much greater. Mm. So there were far more vacancies coming on stream because the old adults were dying off. They were being poisoned. And there were more vacancies for the birds in Britain to go on to territories and start breeding. They could get territories and start breeding. In Ireland, they couldn't get these territories so easily. They started moving all over the country, which is another curious find. I was getting swans everywhere. I got a swan in Scotland. I got swans in Britain. I got swans as far as Donegal. And several went down to Cork where you found them. Now, this movement was much more extensive here than it was in Britain. So I argued that, in fact, what was happening was the swans couldn't get jobs, they couldn't get territories, so they had to go off and searched a long time for such territories. Now, on the actual lead itself, now, of the 137 deaths, I think, the cause of which I could reliably determine, uh, seven, I think, if I remember rightly, could be ascribed directly to lead poisoning. Now, the other effect, the problem with this kind of analysis, as you have pointed out implicitly, is the thing that kills you might be multifactorial. So if you have lead in you, you're more prone Mm. to his wires, you're more prone to get into trouble. I couldn't rule that side out. But in terms of what was directly killing the swans, lead was accounting definitely for around 7 out of 137 or so. So that was roughly the finding. Now, I think in Britain at that time, they banned certain sizes of lead shot, something like less than 0.06 of a gram to something like 28 point something grams shot was ruled out. It was That was the size of shot that a swan or a bird would take in for its gizzard. Outside of that, they allowed it. Now, and I think they have banned shooting near wetlands as well. But anyway, that is my my take on it. Niall, this is an appropriate time now to remind people about this EU ban and what it says. Yes, so the issue of lead shot contaminating the environment and particularly the effect that it has on birds has been a really hot topic in recent years. And indeed, many European countries, including the Netherlands, have have already banned it. So the EU has now brought in this new regulation that means over the course of the next couple of years, the member states have to phase out the use of lead shot uh, for hunting and for for animal shooting uh, in certain circumstances. And it kind of depends a bit on the situation in each country. But certainly what is, uh, is beyond question is that there will be a blanket ban on the use of lead shot for hunting at wetlands or within a distance of 100 metres of a wetland. So that's to protect these habitats and particularly because the effect on swans and other birds that that will use this uh, this substance to help them digest their food, as John was explaining, and therefore it will leach into their bodies and, and, and it's incredibly toxic. We know that lead shot is a significant issue because so much of it ends up in wetlands. A lot of our huntable species in Ireland and indeed across Europe are wetland species. People shoot lots of ducks, for example, several species of wader are shot. So there's a lot of firearms being discharged at wetlands. A lot of those pellets are there being sprayed across the surface of the water or they're going to the mud at the edge of it or perhaps into streams that are then washing down into other bodies of water. That lead is sinks down to the bottom. And then birds with long necks like swans or diving ducks like tufted ducks or potchards maybe, they'll dive right down to the bottom. They may will cons- consume some of this shot. And as John was saying, it takes maybe six or seven pellets to kill a mute swan. The mute swan is the bird with the largest body mass of any in Ireland. So for smaller birds like ducks, it's going to take, it sounds to reason, it'll take far fewer pellets to kill them. So that, this is having a, a big knock-on effect on our wildlife. 
And as John was saying, we've uh, taken a step already to remove lead from other parts of the environment. It's been removed from pencils, from paint, from petrol. Uh, so it stands to reason that we need to take it out of our wetlands ecosystems as well. But are we introducing the ban here in line with EU regulations? Well, so it, it, it's complicated. So what will have to happen is the ban uh, of using lead shot of wetlands will come in here. And that, that has to happen. That's happening all across the EU. The regulation, though, it makes a provision that if a country's area comprises more than 20% wetlands, as defined by the Ramsar Convention, which I'll explain in a moment, then the ban has to be across all habitats nationwide, both at wetlands and away from wetlands. So that would cover perhaps um, shooting of pheasants in woodlands, for example, or in fields adjacent to woodlands which wouldn't technically be wetlands, but the ban would, would, would occur across the whole country. So it was assumed, therefore, that this nationwide ban would also, therefore, apply to Ireland. It wouldn't just be a ban at wetlands. It would be a ban across the whole country uh, because wisdom would dictate that Ireland comprises more than 20% wetlands. However, uh, the government has announced that using certain criteria they've used, uh, using a, a European mapping scheme called Corine, uh, they've determined that, as far as they can tell, um, they just have evidence that Ireland comprises 18.72% wetlands. Uh, so therefore the ban is only required in wetland areas and not nationwide. Uh, so that was a, a bit of a surprise because it would seem to, to fly in the face of our understanding of what comprises a wetland and indeed the Ramsar Convention definition of what a wetland is because it has to include peatland. It may even include land that used to be peatland but now has forestry plantations on it and so forth. Uh, so the definition would seem to be not in keeping with certainly the spirit of the regulations and it's been acknowledged now that the, the European Commission will have to provide more information on, on what is exactly required um, in in, uh, in the definition of a wetland for the ban to, to, to cover the whole country. So it is very complex and, and technical, uh, but uh, certainly we, we in Birdwatch Ireland are disappointed to see that a blanket ban has not been announced by the government on the use of lead shot nationwide. Welcome the fact that it would be banned at wetlands, of course, but we certainly hope that following clarification from the European Commission about the actual definition of wetlands, that perhaps actually the ban will be able to come in nationwide. Because as John said, this is a powerful neurotoxin. It's a, it's a a very dangerous chemical, not something we need to have in the environment. And it's affecting lots of species of birds that are actually already under serious threat. We've seen a decline uh, of over 40% in Ireland's wintering waterfowl populations. That goes to 77% for wintering ducks like potchard, for example. Uh, that, um, that's a species that's really declined very sharply. And they are species that it stands to reason would be the hardest hit, I suppose, by the ingestion of lead pellets at wetlands. Well, we did get a statement from Minister of State Malcolm Noonan, read the use of lead shot. He says, following voting by member states, the European Commission introduced a regulation on the use of lead shot in and around wetlands. I fully support the underlying thrust of the regulations and I'm committed to working with all of the relevant stakeholders to phase out lead shot in wetlands. It's clear that lead in the environment is undesirable for humans and can cause harm to water birds. He goes on to say that I had previously committed that I would establish a working group to scope out the impact of the regulation. I intend appointing a chairperson in the coming weeks who will work with invited stakeholders to progress the implementation of the regulations. Terms of reference will be agreed setting out the work to be undertaken by the forum. The implementation and enforcement of these regulations will require hunters to change to alternative non-lead shots. This will be one of the issues to be discussed by the forum. I do not, he says, want to preempt the work of the forum. There are complex issues that need to be discussed with the relevant bodies and enforcement agencies and I will await the output from the forum before making any further comments in relation to how the regulations will be enforced. And they've sent us on some details, some information on the calculation of the National Wetlands figure that you mentioned there, Niall, so people can go to our website and have a look at that. Now, I know that you're anxious to point out that you don't have any beef with the hunting lobby in relation to this issue. Do you really? Absolutely not. And I'd like to stress that uh, hunting is not something that I'm uh, into myself. It's not something that I'd, I would do. Uh, but we do recognise that uh, hunters and hunting groups and game clubs can actually be some of the, the, the biggest advocates for conservation. Uh, many people involved in hunting have been the strongest advocates for wetland conservation and protection, for habitat restoration, and uh, do a lot to conserve our wildlife. Because, of course, they have a vested interest in making sure there's a healthy ecosystem there to support their quarry species. And so, in many cases, birdwatchers and conservation 
conservationists and uh, hunters are very much on the same page here. So it's not about banning hunting, not at all. It's about taking a toxic substance out of the environment. And of course, there is an alternative that is used in many cases. And of course, at wetlands now, within a couple of years, will have to be used in a mandatory way. And that's non-lead shot. And the the, the most common example of that is is steel shot, uh, which is inert. It's not toxic uh, to any animals that happen to ingest it. So it's far safer from an environmental point of view. Now, what we do recognise, of course, is that there is a downside there in that uh, guns that are designed to shoot lead shot specifically aren't in many cases able to handle steel shot because it it, it requires a reinforced gun barrel uh, and therefore some firearms, particularly older ones, aren't suitable for shooting uh, stainless steel shot. That's certainly an issue and there are costs there involved for for hunters. But of course, there have been costs involved in everything, including taking lead out of the petrol, using uh, lead-free paint, taking lead out of pencils, all of these things that have been done for environmental reasons. And so, um, as far as I'm concerned, this is a cost that's required, unfortunately. Actually, I read somewhere that it could cost in excess of 200 million to decommission and replace the firearms that are legally held by farmers and hunters and landowners alike if this becomes a national ban. Anyway, at this point, I think we should bring in Dr. David Scallon, who's the Secretary General with the European Federation for Hunting and Conservation. David, thank you for joining us. Will you begin by telling us a little about your organisation, please? Yes, we represent the interests of Europe's 7 million hunters, and our members are typically the national hunting associations in 37 European countries. So in Ireland... We have an umbrella structure called Face Ireland, and the uh, main body is the National Association of Regional Game Councils. How is this ban going to impact on your members, and what problems have they got with it? Well, in a broader European perspective, most European countries have already legislation in place on phasing out lead shot for hunting over wetlands, and this has been due to international obligations. Now, How this will implement um, hunters in Ireland will really depend on how the uh, department devises the regulation. And there's a few key points. So it comes into effect in one year. And we now seem to have indications that about 18% of Ireland will be uh, affected. And this would be a similar percentage to other countries that already have laws in place. And this 18% will probably cover... Ireland's main water bodies, lakes, rivers, probably foreshore. And for the purpose of the regulation, it's important that there is a clear definition of wetlands. So water needs to be uh, visible and identifiable to hunters, but also enforcement officers. So this will ensure that all parties involved will have certainty and clarity on where lead shot can be used and where lead shot cannot be used. And I, I know the our Irish member in particular, the NARGC, has you know made some requests to the minister and also for uh, meetings to get this moving because uh, one year is quite close. And in, in other countries, there's been a longer transition period before such a law would come into effect. But it takes um, the necessary time to ensure that hunters are equipped to start using non-lead shot. Mm. And Typically, in most cases, um, the the replacement in 95% of cases is is steel shot. So there's a lot of shotguns in use in Ireland by hunters, but also by the farming community. And of course, there are issues if you have older shotguns that may need modification or adaptation or in some cases replacement to ensure that steel shot can be safely used. And there's an added complexity in Ireland in that there is no proof house. And and normally, it's a much better situation if shotguns can be uh, tested through uh, a a proof house. So the law comes into effect next year. So it's it's timely. uh, A discussion is taking place. I guess the impact of this will all depend on how appropriately the implementation is. And that's why it's important. It's workable. It's important. The definition of a wetland is understandable. Using lead and, and steel are, are, are a little bit different from a hunting and, and, and shooting perspective. Well, well, that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to say, forget about the definition of a wetland. Why not just switch over to steel? Is it about money? Is it about having to pay money to change the weapon that you're using? 
Yep. So typically the move to steel shot has taken three or five years in most other European countries. And, and that's really because of what I've mentioned. It's, it's to give hunters the necessary time to transition in terms of adapting, modifying, even replacing shotguns. Now, there's definitely a good category of shotguns in Ireland that are more modern and they should be fine with non-lead shot. But there definitely is... Um, quite a substantial percentage of shotguns that will be, you know, either unsuitable or will need to be adapted or modified. And, and that's why you cannot do something immediately in this context. It, it needs time. And we've surveyed this at the wider European level, and we even estimate that 20% of shotguns may have limited suitability and maybe 20% of shotguns could be unsuitable for non-lead shot. There is a financial aspect there yeah. too, of course, um, you, you know, that needs to be con considered. Steel is the main alternative to lead shot in use. There is bishmut and there is tungsten. And some of these alternatives can be up to um, 10 times more expensive uh, than the use of lead shot. But the regulation is coming in, into force in a year. And, and that's not a very long period of time for the Irish hunting community to adapt and to transition. So it's important that, um, you know, things move forward and, 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 you know, the minister meets their Well, it's all supply and demand, involved. isn't it, David? So the more people start using the alternatives to lead shot, then the price should come down. It should fall in relation to the demand. But if it's just about money, are you lobbying the EU on behalf of your members saying it's going to cost a lot of money? Give us the money and we'll move with you. Uh, no, it's, it's not the case. Um, I mean, FACE has been, and its, and, and, and its members, they've transitioned in most European countries, in some cases 20 years ago. Um, so it's not about money, it's about giving the appropriate time for the hunting community to be able to adapt. So currently you, you won't find uh, even non-lead shot available in Ireland in, in, in most places, but you're right. Once, the, once um, in, in, in the coming months, and when the law comes into force, um, alternatives will, of course, be available. Um, but there's all sorts of uh, other aspects. Um, there's awareness raising. Uh, you need to be more conscious about shot distance. You need to be quite conscious of safety aspects. And in some cases, using steel shot, in particular, if you're uh, un uncertain about your shotgun, many hunters should take shotguns to a, to a gunsmith to get it checked. There aren't that many uh, licensed gunsmiths in Ireland. So... There's uh, a whole raft of implications that makes it challenging, but at the same time, the law is coming in in, in, in one year, so, so we just got to get used work to it. needs to take place. I'm asking you now that your members are not against this change, are they? No, the position in FACE hasn't been against phasing out lead shot over wetlands at all. We've actually had a joint position even with BirdLife International at the European level uh, because of international obligations to do this. And the law is in place, really, because of international obligations under the African-Eurasian Migratory Waterbird Agreement. And that's why the, the EU decided to create a regulation, because it wanted full implementation at the EU level to meet this international agreement. So we haven't been against this within FACE, but many of our members have highlighted issues about this particular piece of legislation in terms of how well it was um, crafted, the, the, the level of clarity on what is a wetland and what isn't a wetland, uh, the transition period. And there's an interesting dimension to this whereby the regulation reverses the presumption of innocence. So in a way, a hunter could be assumed guilty if he or she is even carrying lead shot near a wetland. So that's why it's so important to have a, a very clear definition of a wetland so hunters understand this, enforcement officers understand this, so there isn't problems with uh, uncertainty or, or legal issues in the courts, etc. I think that's me, really in, in everyone's interest. David, it seems to me just a total ban on lead shot would solve that problem. You don't need a definition, just ban the lead shot, that's it. Anyway, you mentioned BirdLife International. Let's bring in Niall Hatch from BirdWatch Ireland, who are a member of that umbrella organisation. Niall, 
Yes, um, really interesting points there made by David, and I completely agree with him on the need for for clarity on the definition of wetlands. We need to have certainty, of course, for any law that would come in that would potentially criminalise anybody's act, actions or behaviour. This he's mentioning about the presumption of guilt as well. That that there's issues around that, obviously, even constitutionally here in Ireland. So I think I think you know he's quite right. Uh, more thought needs to go into this, and there needs to be absolute clarity for the people who are delivering this. But as he says, the ban in in shooting over wetlands is certainly coming in. So so people will have to get help in adapting to that and making sure that they're ready for it. Uh, and I think it's important as well to recognise that um, throughout the conservation sphere, whether it's people who are involved in the European Federation for hunting and conservation, people like myself involved in BirdLife International, all the international conventions on this as well, we know that lead, particularly in, in watercourses and in wetland habitats, is extremely harmful to wildlife. As we said earlier, it's a neurotoxin. It's very important that it's removed from our ecosystem. So certainly we very much welcome the introduction of this legislation. We hope it will be properly implemented in Ireland. Uh, and of course, we hope that um, proper uh, training and support will be given to the people who are, who are involved in hunting and, and farmers who are shooting on their lands as well uh, to make sure that they're properly able to comply with the law. I think that's very important. So to finish, David, you are in favour of it. Your members are in favour of it. You just need more time. Well, it's coming into place in uh, one year, so the timeline is set. So action is required in Ireland, and I think you know the key message, and it's, it's also coming from Face Ireland and from the NARGC in particular, that discussions mm-hmm. need to take place between the minister, between the affected stakeholders, to make this into a workable implementation. And you mentioned you know, the full ban. 23 countries in Europe already have uh, laws in place over phasing out lead shot over wetlands, and they've been designed in a way, I can say that they're workable and, and, and there's general satisfaction. So there's no reason why Ireland cannot have a good implementation with respect to this EU regulation. David, thank you very much indeed. Of course, Niall, I mean, isn't there talk that, apart from it is a neurotoxin, as we know, that it can get into the human food chain as well? Well, yes, absolutely. And, and uh, at a time when, when a lot of people were eating eating game uh, in Ireland and other European countries at a higher consumption than we would have today, it was known that ingestion of, of lead pellets in, just from eating, you know, being in the flesh of, the, of the, the meat that people were eating, that this was having an effect on their on their intellect and so on. It has a, it has a, a disastrous effect on, on the development of, of, of brain tissue and, and particularly for, for young children. Uh, so it was known, for example, among aristocracy, they had this reputation for being, you know, um, let's say somewhat dim and that was often attributed to the fact that there was a lot of lead in their diets from what they were eating. We also see actually a knock-on effect on this on birds of prey and that's something that we've um, we've spoken a bit about in the programme before in terms of the threats facing birds of prey here in Ireland. We know it's been a big issue in other countries too that if um, if an animal is shot um, let's say hypothetically a, a fox for example is shot uh, on a farm uh, using lead shot which would be perfectly legal at the moment um, that, uh, that that if, if that carcass is left there then a bird of prey like a buzzard or an eagle may come and scavenge on that will therefore ingest those lead pellets and we know that the lead has a hugely toxic effect on birds of prey it's been for example one of the main reasons behind the decline in a bird called the California condor in North America a species that actually went extinct in the wild and had to be reintroduced and that, that their comeback is now being affected because they're, they are scavenging on animals like deer that have been shot with, with lead shot or with lead bullets as well uh, and then are ingesting this toxin so having it in the wider environment is an issue as well and uh, of course um, it's certainly something that we as becoming more environmentally aware and we know the effect that we humans are having on the environment it's something that I think more people are keen to address uh, so I think it's yeah, very important to bear in mind that it affects animals not just the animals of course that are at the locations where, where the, or the targets that are being shot but the wider ecosystem as well and as you said a knock-on effect on us human beings as well in terms of contamination of our diet also of our waterways and our water systems too because lead really is an insidious poison uh, and even at very low concentrations can have serious uh, detrimental effects. Mm. Anyway, if you want to read the minister's statement, you can visit our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. We will watch this space. OK, let's move on to Cove now and say hello to Jim Wilson. Hi, Jim. How are you? Derek, very well indeed. Um, I just, just want to pick up uh, a little bit on the on your last item on mm-hmm. the, the lead in wildlife. I, I would hope that uh, all hunters uh, who, who value the natural environment uh, as much as we do would not like to see an intentional spreading 
of, you know, a, a very poisonous heavy metal into the environment. And I know that it has kind of evolved, uh, you know, lead shot was originally used, etc., etc. But I would hope that we can find a way to transition away from that because I think the levels were something like 100,000 tonnes of lead between, you know, all forms of uh, hunting sports uh, into the environment in Europe per year, which, which is quite shocking. And when you think that we've got rid of lead piping out of our homes, that because it was we were saying, found yeah. out to be dangerous, you know, I mean, all those things. And there's apparently there's no safe level of ingestion of lead, according to the World Health Organization and, and, and organizations like that. You know, as I said, that our, our hunting colleagues would actually be the ones that would be most wanting to move away from lead. You know, also they're, they're, they're affecting the birds that they like to shoot. So, you know, I, I, think, I think everybody is on the same side when you, when you view it like that. It's just how to get there, uh, I think, seems to be the issue. And at least this is a step forward and hopefully it will eventually lead to the removal of lead shot in the environment. Well, as David Scallon said, his members are not objecting to this ban. It's just uh, the definitions yeah. and how and the time, etc., etc. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about happy things and positive things. Jim, was it 25 <laughs> years ago when you told me all about the little egret in Cork? So just again, explain to our listeners what the little egret is and why it was important 25 years ago when you mentioned it to me first. Well, Derek, the, the little egret um, is what most people would have phoned me up and described to me as a little white hern with yellow feet. And that pretty much sums it up. It's, it's a, like a, a miniature grey hern, which is the one we're used to. And uh, unlike the grey hern, it doesn't stand around waiting for food to come to it. It tends to go chasing after it. And so they're far more active when you see them uh, hunting compared to the hern, which stands like a statue uh, without moving a muscle, waiting for its prey to come close enough for it to pounce on it with its long neck and its big dagger-shaped beak. So, so that's the little egret. And, and the reason we discussed it 25, actually, Derek, I have to, <laughs> I, I have to tell you, it, 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 we spoke about it 25 years ago. It's another 25 years before that when I actually saw my first one, uh, 1975-76 oh in Cork. God, how old and are people you? Had, <laughs> Oh, that would be giving away a trade secret. I, I was I was in my mid-teens at that stage, and people had driven from Belfast to see it. Now, if you asked any bird watcher on the island, <laughs> would they travel the length of the country to see a little egret today? They'd roll roll around the floor laughing at you because it's not a case of if I'm going to see a little egret this year. It's how many am I going to see? And we, we've now got them in, I think, almost every county in Ireland and hundreds of them are now breeding here. They are now part of the bird life of Ireland. Now, the reason I mentioned them is I want to know that was a very positive story and they're here and they're doing well. Have you noticed anything else in that 25 years? That's where I'm going with this question. Yeah, very, very good, Derek. Yeah, you're dead right. I mean, we, you know, rightly so, we, we like to you know, point up all, all the, the, the negatives and, and the things we should be worried about and the things we need to do things about. But while this is all going on, nature also has a habit of taking advantage of situations. You know, there are winners and losers uh, all the time through, throughout history, throughout uh, for eons. But the, at the moment, there's more losers than winners. But the winners uh, in Ireland, within my lifetime, birds have also been increasing and doing well in Ireland. We, we mentioned the little egret, but there are other birds and a lot of them are, are wetland and water birds because they tend to move around a bit more and, and they tend to be what we would call the, um, the frontier uh, species that, that arrive first. And we had the cattle egret is another one that's been turning up a lot. We've had, we've had a number of them, for example, here in County Cork over Christmas. Uh, like the first Irish record was back in 1976. There was one in Kerry and one in Wicklow. And, and since then, they've spread absolutely hugely, not only in Ireland, but around the world. And they bred for the first time in the UK in 2007. Now, in Ireland, bird watchers keep a close eye on the southeast corner of the United Kingdom because that's the closest spot in these islands to continental Europe where you, you walk out of the water in France and you can 
walk all the way to China without getting your feet wet, you know? So what, what it is, is that birds that are moving north in their range usually hop across uh, the, the English Channel to Britain first. And, and it's from there, a lot of them then spread across Britain and onto Ireland. And at the moment, for example, the cattle egret has bred there in 2007. And it's much larger cousin, the great white egret, of which we have a few in County Cork at the moment as well. Uh, they actually nested in the United Kingdom in 2012 and now they have about 10 pairs breeding. So it's guaranteed, unless something really dramatic happens, that we will start seeing more and more of them, the great white egret, and we might even uh, have them breeding fairly shortly. Other birds, uh, the, the glossy ibis, which looks like a, a, a dark curlew. Uh, in fact, there was one in Ballyfermot uh, just yesterday. They're all over the place this year. Again, they were hardly ever uh, seen in Ireland uh, 25 years ago and now they're becoming more and more common. Mediterranean gull, uh, first bred in County Wexford that we know of in 1996 and now they're breeding every year and I mean when I saw my first one in the 1970s it was the fifth county record for Cork. Last winter I saw nearly 500 Mediterranean gulls in Cork Harbour. There are numbers again expanding north. The common buzzard, we've mentioned it on the programme many, many times, they're doing really well. Back from the brink, basically, they were shot out of it in the 19th century uh, and they first bred again in County Cork in 2004. And, and, and they're doing really well. We get lots of reports of eagles in my back garden and things like that. And we always take note of that. A lot of the public are very, very aware of the birds around them. They might know what they are and that's why they contact Birdwatch Ireland to find out, can you identify it for me? And we're getting more and more of these uh, calls about the buzzard. And another one is the great spotted woodpecker. People are getting them on their peanut feeders, especially in the East Coast. Um, I mean, there was less than 50 records up to the 1980s. And uh, they first bred, confirmed breeding here in 2005. And now they're spreading uh, year on year. The J, I must finish with the J. I think Terry would, would know this bird very, very well. He studied it a lot in the past and he even did a documentary called The Colourful Crow. Well, we've noticed the jay, which is a crow, but incredibly well coloured, is now starting to spread an awful lot more. It's, it's expanding its range. Uh, bird watchers do the an atlas. The bird watchers uh, put together an atlas of breeding birds in Britain and Ireland every 10 years or so. And we can see from comparing the, the results from previous Atlas surveys that the jay is expanding north at, at a ferocious rate. It's even up into Scotland now. There are suggestions that global warming uh, has to do with that. It definitely, we reckon, has to do with a lot of the other species I mentioned, um, that definitely conditions are, are, are better uh, now a little bit further north, not as cold, winters aren't as harsh, and so more and more are surviving and they're slowly spreading north. What's going to come next? We haven't a clue. You mentioned the jay there, Jim. We might as well say hello to Terry and ask him about them. Terry, you study jays oh, way back when. Do you remember exactly when it was? Oh, that's a long, long time ago, yeah. And as Jim said, certainly I had a documentary too back, oh, it must be 15 or 20 years ago. But they're a beautiful bird. It's hard to believe that they're actually a crow. They're somewhat like a magpie. They've got the same kind of body shape as a magpie, not quite as long. The tail is not quite as long, but they've got those beautiful wings. They've got that beautiful coloration, uh, that lovely blue in the wings. And as Jim has said, yeah, I remember when I studied them, they were certainly moving very much westwards and northwards. And of of course, what they're doing is they're helping to spread oak forests as well. And they have become very, very tame. Remember back when I was studying, that was back in the 80s. You'd never see one in anybody's garden. You'd never see one at a feeder. And very, very occasionally we would get a call into the programme saying that there's a rare bird in their garden or a foreign bird in their garden. Or if they lived somewhere near a zoo or lived somewhere near Photo Island, they would say, oh, a bird's after escaping and it's after getting into my garden. Should we catch it and bring it back? And what colour is it, I'd say? Uh, is, it, is there blue in the wings? Yes, there is beautiful blue and it's a kind of a screech as well and I'd say no it's not it's it's a local bird I said it's a jay it's a crow oh no it's not a crow it's not a crow 
everybody thinking, of course, that crows are black. And uh, it was a jay. And they, their numbers have increased and they're lovely to see coming into the gardens. Now. And they're feeding off feeders as well. Uh, acorns would be their favourite food. They would bury, bury... They would bury lots of acorns and they would come back to them during the winter to retrieve them as food right up to feed the young the following June or so. But of course, having planted thousands and thousands of acorns, they can't remember where every one of them is. So every so often you would see these oak trees growing in most unusual spots. I saw them when I was doing that study in orchards, maybe 200 metres away from the nearest oak tree. And the only way that acorn could have gotten there is by a jay. So a fantastic bird. And yes, their numbers are definitely increasing and they're also spreading. Well, I actually saw a news report on Channel 4 during the week about the spread of the Jay, Terry and Jim. Niall, did you see that, that the Jay is doing well in Scotland? Yes, I did. And it's been interesting to note that uh, here in Ireland, the jay, of course, uh, we have a, a separate, unique Irish subspecies of it. So that, that would indicate it's a species that's been present in Ireland for a very long time. So it's it, unlike some of the other birds that, that Jim was mentioning, this bird isn't a newcomer to Ireland. It's been here for thousands of years. But we have seen a similar increase in sightings here in Ireland as well, particularly through the Irish Garden Bird Survey. It's slowly creeping up in the table. Now, the jay traditionally is a secretive bird. It tends not to come to the open very much. And Irish jays are actually known for being more secretive in their habits than the jays in Britain or on the continent. And they're also a bit darker than British birds, um, so they look different in the field as well. But that shy behaviour has been particularly notable for them here in Ireland. But through the Irish Garden Bird Survey, we are seeing an increase, certainly, in them coming to bird tables and to mm. feeders in gardens. They're still nowhere near one of the top most common birds in Ireland. They're not in the top 20 or the top 30 Irish Garden Birds. But the numbers are creeping up on the table. So something is changing with their populations here too. Maybe there's something uh, in the climate that's uh, that, that's improving um, for them. Uh, we know certainly that very, their success is very much tied to that of oak trees and of acorns. So perhaps as uh, more trees are being planted and more forestation is happening of native forests and native trees, this is going to have a knock-on benefit certainly for the jays. Well, the great report to see on Channel 4, sorry for cutting across you now, the report on Channel 4 was saying that it's due to climate change and that the winters are milder in Scotland and that's how come the jay is now able to thrive there. That would certainly stand to reason because the jay is a bird that has a tough time in the winter particularly. And as Terry was saying there, one of the main strategies that jays have for surviving the winter is what we call food caching, burying food, particularly acorns in the case of this species, sometimes hundreds or even thousands of them to get them through those winter months. And of course, in very cold areas where there's a lot of snow cover or perhaps even where the ground freezes solid, the jays have no way of getting back down to the acorns that they buried. So it really removes that larder from them. So it stands to reason then that if winter temperatures are increasing in places like northern Scotland, it then means that this bird can afford to stay there throughout the whole year because the ground is no longer so hard or so covered in snow, making it easier to find the food that it's looking for. Of course, in doing that, it may well now be competing with other species that had adapted to those colder conditions. So it remains to be seen uh, whether the increase of the jay there will have an effect on other birds and other, other species indeed, not just birds. Because we know that jays are also quite voracious predators. They're very intelligent, being a member of the crow family after all they're very smart and so having them move into new areas uh, it's not necessarily good news for some of the other creatures that already live there so as is always the case with things like climate change there will be winners but there will also be losers as well Now you said that they're appearing more and more in your garden bird survey and people are spotting them in the gardens and how could they miss them they're so brightly coloured they look very exotic indeed uh, Is the sparrow on that list? Because yesterday I was walking down Marlborough Street just across the road from the Pro Cathedral and about 50 metres or so down from the Department of Education, there's a, an apartment block there. Anyway, outside the apartment block, there's railings and a hedge. And in the hedge, the sparrows are roosting, chirping and singing, if you want to call it chirping or singing. What are they doing? Well, yes, so uh, I know that that part of Dublin is quite good for sparrows at the moment and sparrows do seem to be doing relatively well in older urban areas in Ireland. They wouldn't be breeding yet, uh, although they can breed quite early if the weather conditions are right and there's lots of food around. But sparrows, specifically house sparrows, which are the species in question here, they uh, do like company. They always tend to live in small colonies or sometimes large colonies, as large as they can, they can manage. And they do that throughout the whole year. 
Now, whether they're singing or calling or exactly what that sound is, it's hard to determine because, of course, these birds haven't read the rule book. Uh, singing, as we always say during the Dawn Chorus programmes each year, it's generally a very aggressive territorial thing. So a male bird, and in, in Europe it's usually just male birds that sing, with a couple of exceptions. In other parts of the world, uh, females sing as well, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere. But here in Europe, it's almost exclusively a male pursuit. And they're singing uh, to uh, defend a territory from other rival males and also then to attract in a female trying to impress her with his vocal prowess. Now, nobody could say really that sparrows have much by way of vocal prowess. They just make that chirping noise all the time. They do it throughout the whole year, uh, although perhaps a bit more so in the summer, but they do it all year round, and both males and females make it as well. So it, it, we know with, 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 with the sparrows, they're not as territorial as other birds that say like a robin or a blackbird in your garden. They nest in colonies, and instead of singing to compete for the best spots, what they do is they work at a sort of hierarchy among the males based on how large the black patch of feathers, this black bib they have on their chin going down onto their chest, how big that is. So the the extent of that patch is caused by testosterone. So the, the males with the most testosterone have the biggest patches. And that makes them more aggressive, more attractive to the females as well, So and also therefore more intimidating to the other males. So the males with the most testosterone and therefore the biggest patches then tend to get the best nesting sites, tend to get uh, the best mates in terms of mate quality. And therefore they don't really need to have much by way of vocal technique because uh, they're not relying on their songs to do this. So maybe that's why there's such a simple vocal Organization has evolved in sparrows. It certainly is very distinctive, and uh, as you could hear there in your recording, it's very uh, loud. Is what it it's is. Very loud. <laughs> it's very loud indeed, and it sounds like there's certainly a few dozen sparrows in that flock. It's very difficult to, to work out exactly how many from recording because they all. No, sound you can't see them. You can hear them, Niall. And as close as you get to that hedge, and I was right up at that hedge because I was using my mobile phone. I didn't have any particular recording device with me other than the recorder on the phone, and I still couldn't see them. And it wasn't even a, a thick hedge or anything like that. Well, it shows you just exactly what these birds need in terms of their habitat. When their habitat requirements are met... Yeah, well, exactly. Very little, but it's very specific and it's been disappearing. So what they need is, essentially, they need ideally old buildings with lots of gaps in the brickwork and little nooks and crannies and crevices where they can they can nest and find shelter and also hedges or other thick plants nearby where they can also shelter where they can find insects and how they can move around as well um, because uh, they need insects to feed their chicks of course the adults are vegetarian but they feed uh, they feed insects to their chicks but the hedges are a very important way for them to uh, sort of as a conduit I suppose for them to move around the countryside in between areas and what we find is when hedging disappears from areas and woodlands disappear sparrow populations become very isolated then there's a tendency for them to come inbred and genetic diseases creep in and this causes a big problem for them. And also in many areas where there are modern buildings with you know smooth walls and not so many gaps or nooks and crannies for them, that means that they support a smaller population of sparrows. Mm. And we know that sparrows thrive when they're in large colonies. The larger the colony, the more successful each individual pair of sparrows is when it comes to breeding. They seem happier with each other. They seem to be happy in each other's company. And of course, the more pairs of eyes looking out for danger, the more likely they are to survive you're going to see a predator coming so when the colonies become fragmented it definitely affects their populations and we have seen a a significant population decline in this species uh, in Ireland but also across Europe and that's been worrying to note but in one minute or less that is 60 seconds now between me and you can you tell me based on something you've just said there why are the adults vegetarian and the juveniles not well, the secret to the sparrow's success as a species was moving into Europe, it seems, with early settlers who came from the human settlers who came from the Middle East in prehistoric times. And with them, they brought agriculture and growing of grain and crops. And the adult sparrows, they've evolved to feed on, particularly on cereal crops and on seeds. And that's how they specialise and how they, how they do so well. So they don't tend to eat uh, any kind of animal or insect matter. However, their young chicks, when they're growing, they need a high protein diet. And a vegetarian diet for these birds just doesn't contain enough protein. For for those chicks to be able to grow as rapidly as they need to. So for the first few weeks of life, what happens is the adult sparrows, they feed insect larvae, little grubs, to their chicks uh, in order to make sure that they grow up quickly enough and have to grow their feathers and bones and muscles fast enough to be able to survive. And then they switch to a vegetarian diet. So that explains it. It's not just enough to look after the parents themselves. They also have to make sure that their, uh, their, their, their chicks are well looked after, have enough food as well. And I think that's pretty much exactly 60 seconds, Eric. That'll do. <laughs> no, thank you very much indeed. Thanks also to Terry Flanagan, to Jim Wilson, to Richard Collins, to Dr. David Scallon and to Professor John O'Halloran in Cork. We'll be back again tomorrow night right here on RTU Radio 1 with Mooney Goes Wild 1 or 2, as I said earlier at the top of the programme. Depends on when your week starts and ends. Anyway, 10pm tomorrow on RTU Radio 1, Mooney Goes Wild. RTE.ie forward slash Mooney. Goodbye, 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 goodbye. And that Sunday edition of Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.